Hi, I'm Natalie, and welcome to Infinitely Irrational, where I discuss the real eccentric and complex history of math. In each episode, I unearth the wild stories behind some famous or not-so-famous mathematicians. Today, we conclude our Newton-Leibniz trilogy by attempting to answer a single non-controversial question. Star Wars or Star Trek? So we are back with our final episode of the Newton-Leibniz Star Wars Star Trek controversy. And now this is going to be, this is, this is it listeners. This is, I'm so excited. Yeah, this ben. is, this is the confrontation. This is the Star Wars, Star Trek, also Godzilla versus King Kong for oh, a, yeah. uh, for a more current mm-hmm. pop culture reference, but, yep. but I like the timeless reference. It's always going to be Star Wars versus Star- like in my mind, you know, if you ask someone Star Wars versus Star Trek, you're going to get a treatise on which one is better and why. And the other people are wrong no matter what. But if you ask someone Godzilla versus King Kong, it's like, I mean, they're, they both have their strengths. <laughs> they're, both so, they're both so cute. <laughs> I mean, they're both adorable. Uh, do we want to weigh in real quick to begin on Star Wars versus Star Trek? Or is that too too spicy for... Uh... I, my, like, I'm going to lose half my listener base right now. Okay, never, no, yeah, sorry. I, 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 I've ne- <laughs> never seen Star it's, it's Trek. Like, do you want to weigh in on politics right now? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you my opinion. No, but yeah. seriously, I've, I'm ashamed to admit I've never seen Star Trek. I've only seen like mm-hmm. the later movies and I really mm-hmm. want to go back and watch from the beginning. But every time I talk to people, they're like, no, don't watch like the really, really early stuff. You have to watch like this specific thing. And so many different people have given me so many different pieces of advice that I have no idea where to start. So I guess do, I'm do just, you want, do you want the correct advice? Yes. Give me okay. the correct advice. Skip the old series. You can go back and watch a few of the, you know, the one from the 60s. You can go back and watch a few of the classic episodes, uh-huh. but you mostly don't need that. If you'd okay. like to start with that, you can watch the one that has the tribbles. Okay. Or the little the little fluffy ones. Um, is this all going on the podcast? Is it going to be, we're going to spend half the time talking about Star Trek. Um, <laughs> but so, so. Well, you then, know what and, the listeners are going to do? They're going to email me and they're going to be like, why? No, that's completely wrong. This is what you need to do <laughs> yeah, instead. That's true. That's true. I know. I know. I'm going to get canceled for having the, the wrong <laughs> Star Trek. Um, so you can watch the triples one. That's the one with these little fluffy things. That's a fun episode of the one from the sixties. Then skip straight to the one with Patrick Stewart. Okay. Skip season one, skip season two, start at season three, and then watch it through to the finish. All right. All right, I'm going to do that. Yeah. I endeavor to do that soon. But I do want to say Star Wars just because I've seen it, but like I just cannot with the last two movies. I cannot. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you with Force Awakens and I'm with you with, uh, you know, Solo. But yeah, oh, we're, we're going to get derailed because I, I didn't like the whatever episode nine was, but I did like no, episode eight. It was hot um, garbage is what it okay. was. Well, <laughs> we're both, both, both going to lose our entire fans. You're, you're like, going like, to have to edit this out. <laughs> I know. I know our friendship is on the line here. It's really, this is this is dicey stuff. But the good uh, stuff, like anything okay. with Harrison Ford, Star Wars, I'm I'm on board with. I, okay. I love some Harrison Ford. Yeah, okay. and back, back solo, right? Okay. Yeah. Now back back to the the reason for for this. So Newton publishes his Principia. Yeah. I'm gonna give every letter its due. Principia. <laughs> And so today, right, like in in current times, we give both of them credit. Indeed, we see Emily in her book, she actually managed to entwine some of Newton and Leibniz. We talked about the physical stuff and the the metaphysical stuff and how she put them together. And that was actually how it got to be that her work was her own because Voltaire was saying Leibniz was the worst. Everybody was in their factions. And so given that information, 
how how did it come to this? Yeah, yeah. So right, they wind up getting into this bitter dispute over who did calculus first, mm-hmm. right? Who was the first one there? And the answer is actually pretty simple. Like Newton wrote this stuff down first, you know, in, mm-hmm. in 1665, 1666, that was when he was doing calculus. Uh, Leibniz didn't come up with it for another decade or so. By this so, point, when he'd been shamed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His sort of shameful moment was like early 1670s. And then mm-hmm. by the mid 1670s, that was when he was doing his his calculus. And then, of uh, course, Newton didn't publish till way after that. Exactly. Yeah. So then so who came up with it first? Newton. Who published it first? Leibniz. In 1684, Leibniz mm-hmm. publishes um, the thing basically talking about uh, maxima and minima, right? If you want to do an optimization yeah. problem, you want to find the highest point or the lowest point of something. Uh, here's this cool calculus based method for doing it. So that was the first Western publication on calculus. I really um, like using this example, um, you know, because we talk about optimization and maybe folks are like, well, what's that? Well, you know, if you wanted to f- maximize profit while minimizing costs, things like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The economic application is a really mm-hmm. important one for for that. Um, and that was really like the first, it, it, it comes up, you spend tons of time on it. And when you take a calculus class, like, oh man, we're doing optimization again, more optimization. And it's like, yeah, that, that was one of the really important things it was developed for. Also, it's really interesting. Like who wouldn't want to do that? No, it is. Yeah, it was very cool stuff. So, so in some sense, the the controversy is pretty easy to solve. Like, who wrote this stuff down first? Isaac mm-hmm. Newton. Who published it first? Gottfried Leibniz. Who did it first? I don't know. Depends what you mean by did, right? Like, yeah. like there's no, there's no, there's no simple answer to that. And and both of them built on the work from tons of people. And both of them did it a century after Madhava and the Kerala School of Astronomers in India. So. You know, there, there's your answer. But of course, the argument wasn't really about let's separate these historical questions and come to a consensus agreement. It was about who's going to win and who's going to get credit. There's no I in team, but there's an I in win. Yeah. And there's an I in nationalism. There's two of them, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so it becomes Lies. very. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, oh. So that's what it becomes about. Um, yeah. And it wasn't, you know, there, there was a little bit of a touch off in the 1690s where John Wallace, who was kind of an elder statesman and had, and had come before Newton and influenced Newton a lot. Wallace is the one who gave us the infinity symbol. He's the one who came up with, with that. I'm wearing an infinity symbol oh, on go. my yeah, shirt. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's classic. He also did, as a mathematician working today, you probably won't like this, but he would also use one over infinity to mean oh. an infinitely small number. <laughs> That's stressing me out mildly. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to think too much on it. Yeah, DX, DX, it's DX. <laughs> right, so, so Wallace sort of said something snippy about Leibniz. And there's this quote from Leibniz where he's like, oh, I'm very satisfied with Newton. Newton's nice to me. Let me see, where's the, where's the quote? He says, I'm very satisfied with Mr. Newton, but not for Mr. Wallace, who treats me a little coldly through an amusing <laughs> affectation of attributing everything to his own nation. That's amazing. Um, I love that. And so Leibniz is still like trying to be above it. Yeah. And then a few years later, 1699, this other guy named Nicholas, uh, who I believe is a French fellow. Let's see. Uh, Nicholas Fatio de Dullier. I can't pronounce French, but he's, he's a friend of Newton's. And he just goes haywire on Leibniz. And it's like this lying, cheating jerk. And like just really lays into Leibniz. And everybody, even Wallace is, everybody, even Wallace is like, whoa, 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 Nicholas. <laughs> this is, that is way too far. <laughs> And that, that kind of settles it, it seems like, right? It's like, okay, like, mm-hmm. all right, that, that, that was too far. We have this really weird guy trying to pick a schoolyard fight. We understand that this is, this is silly for us to be arguing about this. Right. But then 1704, what happens is, I believe that's the year that Newton first finally publishes, years after the Principia, fun- publishes his methods in calculus. Because mm-hmm. uh, he still hadn't shared how he actually did this stuff and what his notation was. 
because it was so, in the private room, you don't share that. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. This is deformed necessary business. Got to keep that behind behind the curtain. And so Newton publishes this, and Leibniz is someone who writes an anonymous review of it, which I guess was sort of standard practice at the mm-hmm. time. And Leibniz, this was his fatal error. He just puts in this one line where he's like, "Oh, and of course, yeah, really, Leibniz is the one who did this stuff." <laughs> Standing on the shoulders of giants, I'm the giant. Yeah, exactly. By the way, I'm the giant. Well, he was writing it anonymously, so he was just right, right, right. This this other guy, Leibniz. That is like if you were to go, like, let's suppose you were to go write a review on your own book, but anonymously, secret. Right, right. Or if I were to write, it's really like writing a review of somebody else's book and being like, it's a fine book, but like, you should check out Ben Orland's book. That guy, that guy knows how to write a book. <laughs> and of course, Newton sees right through it, right? Newton sees through this, this anonymous review, knows that Leibniz is the one who wrote it, knows that Leibniz was giving him this little slight. And then here's the thing is you don't want to piss off Isaac Newton. <laughs> He is a bad enemy to make. And oh so gosh, Leibniz- I love this story. Please tell this story. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, he was right. Like, there's a moment when he screams at his stepfather and his mother, something like, I'm going to burn you to death. I mean, that when he's crazy. eight, he's he's not a guy you want to get on the wrong side of. Like, he sticks this thing in his eye. His yeah, mom's probably right. like, what is wrong with you? And then dot, 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 I'm going to burn you. <laughs> <Right>. like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a, he's a Bond villain. I mean, right, like he's, he's got the long flowing wig. He's sticking a needle in his eye. Like he's definitely a frightening character. And then he's, got, he's got the like obese cat that he's petting. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. He really is <laughs> a Bond villain. With a galaxy villain. around its neck. <laughs> yeah. 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 So like when he becomes, I forget the title. He was, he was in charge of the mint though in, in, um, in uh, England. Wait, hold on. And, Talk about Robert Hooke first. Oh, Robert Hooke. Yeah. I don't know much about this story, but I know that he and Robert <laughs> Hooke, like Robert Hooke went from being like one of his idols and someone whose work he was building on to like a blood enemy during the course of the 1670s, I think, 1680s. Oh my gosh. Um, so it was before his conflict with uh, Leibniz, but again, like a, a real priority dispute. And Hooke had done some really brilliant work and Newton just kind of buried him and like really, <laughs> like it was all this, you know, all playing out in the in the British Royal Society, sort of the, this, you know, scientific society. But he was brutal with Hook, and and then you know by 1700 he's risen. I think by 1700, certainly by by 1710 he's risen to be the president of the British Royal Society. Newton has, mm-hmm. so he won his fights. I mean he he did well despite being a fairly antisocial Classic character. Slytherin. Yeah, I'm yeah, a Slytherin. I need to be Slytherin. very clear. So evidently, like <laughs> I was on Team Leibniz a while ago, but like this story and the next one that we're going to talk about with the the treasurer, yeah, this like I was like, oh my gosh, I am Slytherin. <laughs> so- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Newton is definitely Slytherin. Um, Leibniz is probably Ravenclaw. I want to say I could see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, f- I feel more Hufflepuff. Fair enough, fair enough. You know know what? Hufflepuffs are the best, though. Like, they're like, please, no drama. Right, exactly. Right. They're just plucky little hardworking folks. Yeah. Um, Yeah, a little whistle while you work, people. Exactly, Uh, exactly. So, right. So, I guess, is it time to get to the treasury now? Yes. I've got my popcorn. I'm ready. Yeah. So he gets, I don't know many of the details here, but he, he's appointed treasurer or head of the mint or something like that. And one of the huge problems at the time is counterfeiting. Uh-huh. And so one of the things he does, which is very sensible, is he sort of calls back all the coins, which had been very easy to counterfeit because they had smooth edges. Mm-hmm. And so people would just scrape off a little bit off the edge. And so now there was less silver or gold or whatever the metal was in the mm-hmm. coin. And you do that to enough coins, you can make new coins or, you know, melt it down and yeah, now you've yeah. got some extra silver. And so the coins were all weighing a little bit too little. So Newton recalled the coins and minted new ones, which had uh, the ridges along the, ridge, the edge. Yeah. So you couldn't just scrape it off because then it would lose the ridge and you'd see that somebody had scraped metal off of it. 
Anyway, so he was good at his job. Also, there was this guy, um, Chaloner, William Chaloner. Chaloner? I'm not sure mm-hmm. how you pronounce his name. He was like the Danny Ocean of the time. He was like this <laughs> criminal mastermind, like charming, ne'er-do-well, who was counterfeiting. And Newton caught him, built a devastating case against him, and had him killed. And he that's was executed. Amazing. And it's like, that's what happens if you piss off Isaac Newton, you get executed. There's no, <laughs> there's no middle ground. Like either you're, either Newton is ignoring you or Newton is ending your life. Um, and like, that's what Isaac Newton will do. Poor Leibniz. Had he done like one ounce of research and he was like, you know, yeah. Googling who are Newton's enemies? And it would be like deceased, burned, yeah. dead, executed. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, you'd, you'd be looking at the results and it's all these faces with these red X's through them. And you're like, oh my exactly. God. Do not Perhaps want to piss I that shan't guy. say how amazing I personally am in my review of his <laughs> Yeah, maybe I don't want to just like stick in a little barb that accomplishes nothing and makes a sworn enemy for, for centuries. And also, Leibniz was also getting really bad advice from Johann Bernoulli, who was one of the great mathematicians of the day, mm-hmm. one of the very few people who had also mastered the calculus at the level that Leibniz and Newton had, and just like the world's worst wartime conciliary. Because <laughs> he was like, Newton doesn't know any of this stuff. He's making it all up. He probably stole it from you. Oh, you my... should challenge him. And Leibniz was like, hey, you're right, man. He did steal it from me. It's like, no. Egging Bernoulli. him on. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so Bernoulli totally egged him on. There was one point where like Leibniz issued a challenge. Like, you shall not. Right, just like the, the thing um, with, between Fermat and, uh, and Descartes. Yeah. Where Leibniz was like, I bet you can't solve this differential equation. <laughs> and Newton was like, well, the problem's poorly stated, so it's a little ambiguous, but this is the solution. And Leibniz was like, crap, Bernoulli, why did we do this? And <laughs> Bernoulli was like, oh, I don't know, man, it was your, I'm well, backing why, away from why this. Why did you do that? I think <laughs> yeah, is exactly. the question. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, Leibniz. I didn't have any. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Godfrey, I think you made a bad call. I don't, I don't know <laughs> what to tell you. <laughs> so, so Bernoulli was a terrible advisor. Anyway, so, so he kept egging him on. Um, so he publishes this thing, you know, we discover that Newton is this Bond villain with the, the like a really fat cat. Yeah, yeah. Then early 1700s, one of Newton's allies from Scotland yeah. Yeah. named John Keel, uh, he decides he's like really going to just take the long whip and just slap some sense into Leibniz. So what you just described, Newton published, uh, Newton developed it first, Leibniz published it, but in between Newton creating it or, you know, developing it and then Leibniz publishing it, they had corresponded. So although he didn't say this guy stole it, rather he left that, it was skillfully written, I guess, and left it up to the audience to connect the dots or the reader to connect the dots. It can easily be seen. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, he actually said that Newton's letters made calculus sufficiently intelligible to an acute mind, which, first of all, is hilarious because evidently not. And (laughs) that beyond all doubt, Newton was the inventor of, of calculus. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so he's sort of like piecing together some things that are that are true. Right. There's this moment where Leibniz claimed this method as his own that it turned out someone else had had already come up with. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a strike against Leibniz. They hadn't really corresponded directly, but there's a guy Oldenburg who sort of passed some letters between them. And so they had done a little bit of corresponding about mathematics and about methods. And, you know, it, it's, it's also possible, you know, to my eye, I don't, I'm not a historian. But it seems possible to me that Leibniz was influenced by knowing that Newton had accomplished some of these tasks. Yeah. Right? So it was easier to solve a problem. Like if your friend on the homework is like, oh, yeah, I got number two. 
Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's going to make it True. easier for you to solve number two, because uh, otherwise you might be like, oh, is number two a mistake? Is it impossible? Like mm -hmm. knowing that a problem has been solved really does make a difference. Yeah. And possibly, possibly both Newton and Leibniz got that benefit from, no, you know, if they were aware that these problems had been solved in India, that might have been a benefit to both of them. Right. Anyway, so, so, um, right, so Kiel is putting together this kind of this piece against... Leibniz, this attack uh -huh. on Leibniz. And it's, yeah, it's pretty artfully constructed, like you say, where it manages to insinuate that he stole it from Newton without quite coming out and making the overt accusation. And this was kind of step one in Newton's plan to devastate Leibniz, which, which he executed flawlessly. Which skillful by itself. <laughs> yeah, he's good. Right, right. Because you don't make the attack yourself, right? That was, that was mm -hmm. Leibniz's mistake of trying to make the attack behind the veil of anonymity that Newton saw through. Mm -hmm. So Newton gets his, his Scottish buddy to, you know, to make the attack for him. And so then Leibniz, salty as heck, yeah. he then says, I'm going to ask the British Royal Society, <laughs> like he needs to apologize first of all. Yeah, it's so, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> and like, yeah. I don't know if the listeners got this from when we said it, but <laughs> who... Who is the president of the Royal Society? It's so silly of Leibniz. It's so dumb. He might, he's like, he gets into this fight where this guy's attacking him on Newton's behalf. He's like, this, this cannot stand. What, a, what an outrageous attack. I demand, I demand recompense and, and, and an apology. And let's get a resolution from the British Royal Society. What a respectable group with their esteemed president, Isaac Newton. He will be an impartial judge in this matter. Yeah, and so, and so, it, so again, right? Like here we have Newton and his Slytherinness because yeah. what he says is, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to appoint a committee to look into this because evidently, quite obviously, I cannot be impartial. So right, we're going to get a special prosecutor. It'll be totally independent from my office, you know. Yeah. I, I shall not look at it. I am above the line here. Yeah, we have se separation of powers, don't worry. It's yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you want to tell us about the report? <laughs> yeah, it turns out it comes out like six weeks later. And it turns out the report doesn't favor Leibniz. It turns what out the report shot. is pro-Newton. Yeah, Who not... predicted this? <laughs> right, exactly. Like, yeah, not another what question expected. I have, why did he go to the British Royal Society when Newton... Like, go to the German yeah. Royal or whatever <laughs> right. it was, you know? That's true. I, I'm not sure what the, one, the, the ones were like on the continent. It, it may have been the British Royal Society was sort of the right group to go to. Oh, it, maybe Kiel, so. was, Kiel was also British, so maybe you want, you know, his oh, own yes. country. Yeah, 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 yeah. On the other hand, Newton is in charge of the British Royal Society. So really, literally anywhere else would be better to go than to your enemy. To like, please, would you, would you, using the power and the clothing of this institution, would you please issue an even stronger denouncement of me? <laughs> um, it really, it really wasn't tactically sound. But Leibniz, he was, he was like such a, I don't know, he was like a little too much of a teddy bear. He like, he really thought everybody was going to get together and solve their problems by like moving stones around an what abacus. Well, he was right. Like in, in my twenties, in my early twenties, I'd have felt that way. I'd have been like, people will do the right thing. And then, you know, <laughs> you get older and you're like, oh, people yeah, he was, he was old enough. No, he was in his, I think his fifties probably at this point. Maybe. Oh my you know, gosh. Then, yeah. No, 100%, yeah, no he, he was definitely him. old enough. And he was also, I mean, part, part of the arrogance, I think of him, he was really, you know, by the first decade of the 18th century was sort of like the leading scholar in Europe. He was generally credited with calculus because he was the one who had published mm -hmm. it. He was super famous. He was seen, you know, his kind rationalist philosophy was ascendant. So he was like Mr. Big Shot. And Newton was also big and becoming a more and more important figure. Yeah. But but Leibniz was still sort of saw himself as top dog. And so really didn't think he was going to get just get hammered the way he did. And then what's worse, though, is that not only did they did they rule and say, like, you ain't getting no sorry, sorry. 
But then yeah. they turned around and they paid for this report to be published. <laughs> and like, they sent it everywhere. Yeah. Leibniz is the worst, peeps. <laughs> I know. He really walked into it, right? Leibniz like, please resolve this issue. Like, okay, we've resolved it. You suck, Leibniz, and we're printing it everywhere. We're dropping this flyers. This is the official word. We've invented airplanes just so we can do airdrops of this yeah. flyer that says Leibniz sucks all across the continent. And I just want to say, like, starting out this thing, I was team Leibniz, but, like, this vengeance, this story of vengeance and, like, Newton's just, like, I'm a win is yeah. really making me be team Newton, not because yeah. I not because I like approve of what he did, but the way he did it is so amazing. You just admire the, the John Wick ruthlessness yeah, of it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, he, I mean he was he was good. He's 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 a champion. And so yeah, so he, he basically just crushes Leibniz. I mean Leibniz and he Leibniz keeps trying to fight back, right? But he wants to fight Newton. So he keeps writing these letters to Newton. And Newton is just like no, I, I have nothing to do with this. You know, like, uh, there, there, there was a report from the Royal Society, but I, I didn't write that report, you know? Yeah, like, why are you trying to fight with me? Don't come yeah. at me, bro. But then I think it was around this time that this was when Bernoulli recommended that he challenge Newton mm -hmm. to a contest, which Bernoulli, come on now. <laughs> I know, I know. Has the man not, <laughs> what is wrong with you? I know, he's really, really bad. You should fight this guy. Fight this guy, man. Go fight him. Go fight him. <laughs> you can take him. <laughs> you can take him. Let's don't do I that. I mean, it's like you're goading Sonny Corleone and like, look yeah. what happened there, you know? I'm all yeah, no, upset. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Bern Bernoulli, not a, not, not a no, winning advisor in the this. The worst, the worst. Yeah. And, and so so after all of this happened, then Leibniz decides that he's going to do, he, he's going to double down or triple down or whatever. And he's going to decide that I'm going to work to basically discredit Newton's theory of gravity. Yeah. Yeah. Which wasn't the smartest line of attack. It turns out, <laughs> turns out that theory of gravity had some staying power. Um, <laughs> you can see where in, in 1712, 1713, whatever, you can see where Leibniz would be like, well, I've got the theory of monads. The theory of monads <laughs> will certainly stand the test of time. And this ridiculous theory of universal gravitation that Newton has, that'll never last. So I'll, I'll tear that down. And that'll show that I'm the true scholar here. And Newton is just this pretender. But for, first of all, I mean, trying to pretend that Newton had stolen it from him was really silly because obviously yeah. Newton had had it first and going after gravity was a really desperate kind of last ditch move that was not going to score him any points. I mean, I guess, you know, if you're, if you've like, what does he have to lose? Right. I mean, he's already lost. So <sighs> yeah. Much. He, well, he wound up losing it all. Yeah. I mean, he went yeah. from, you know, 1700 century begins and he's really the foremost scholar in Europe to he dies in 1716 and like really isn't. You know, his funeral's not that well attended. Like, he he goes in a fairly inglorious way. And that's such a shame because really both of them, I mean, we saw like Emily, I love like she entwined them together because what they both, how they both approached it in different ways. And, you know, the fact that Leibniz was able to give us all the terminology that we have today. And I was reading and I forget which book it was, but Britain held on just out of spite to Newton's <laughs> language of fluxions and fluence and like all these things. And they ended up being a little behind while everybody else was using all of Leibniz's work and advancing. And eventually, like very begrudgingly, they were like, Fine, I guess we have to use this stupid language. And that was what got them to catch up, which is so fascinating to me. Like, Yeah, yeah. It is, it is, it's an interesting way in which, yeah, Leibniz, you know, lost the battle, but somehow the continent won the war a little bit because Newton had come up with all the beautiful physical applications that are really at the center of calculus and the understanding of motion. 
Mm-hmm. Newton was really the one who had his finger on that pulse. But Leibniz was the one who had better notation. He really was, he was more concerned with notation. He, it was just easier to use. It was easier to operate. It was easier to teach. There's a great quote from a 20th century mathematician, uh, Vladimir Arnold, which is mm-hmm. Leibniz's notation is perfectly designed. I'm going to get the wording a little wrong, but perfectly designed to be taught by people who do not understand it to other people who will never understand it. Yeah. <laughs> which yeah, is like yeah. basically that like you can, you can do Leibniz's notation without even knowing what you're doing. You can just push the symbols around. You could go to Mathway and enter it in. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, exactly what you said. That's a narrative I've heard before, too, that the continent then raced ahead. And then, you know, 1700s, 1800s, all this great, exciting new math was happening in Europe, in, in France, and in Germany, and elsewhere. And meanwhile, it was behind and wasn't doing as much because they were really set on, like, no, Newton was the one who came up with it. And we're going to stick with Newton's notation. And, like, it just wasn't as good notation. It just kills me because had they each just maybe been like 1% less proud, how much further could we have gotten more quickly? Like instead they used all their resources to like aim their firepower at each other. (sighs) Yeah. No, it is sad. Yeah. 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 I mean, credit, it's a construct that doesn't quite make sense. Ideas don't come from a guy. It's important to have individuals there to help push things forward. But so many people make contributions, right? Like like Duchatelet, another figure that I love who came a generation or two later is um, Maria Agnesi. In, uh, yes. in Italy, who yeah, wrote yeah. the first, just, just as Duchatelet helped create, you know, do the first French translation, um, and yes, he did the first Italian translation mm-hmm. of this work. And she was the one who really beautifully synthesized. It was kind of the first textbook that really brought together differential right. calculus and integral calculus in one volume. And the notation that she chose, she mostly built on Leibniz, but it's sort of so modern and, and well-composed that you can read it today and it still makes sense. You know, I wanted to I wanted to cover her first, but mm. her story is so sad that yeah. I was like, I can't like bring her in first one back out the gate. Let's talk about this really sad story. Yeah. So I've got her, you know, I'm doing I'm working on a uh, Mary Fairfax Somerville now. And mm. then after after that, I, I'm probably going to cover her because oh, she was good. amazing, too. I mean, her oh, I that she Nancy, could yeah. just like memorize Latin and be in the salons and saying, you know, oh, let me do all these things. And fortunately, in Italy, that they encourage women to be able to study and be able to do all these things, whereas that wasn't the way in a lot of places. Yeah, time. yeah. Right. And of course, there were, there were constraints on, you know, what she was, what she was supported in doing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, right. She was given the space to become a brilliant scholar, which, which she was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, so you've got people coming afterwards, you know, like a lot of what we think of as calculus wasn't, isn't there in Newton and Leibniz, you know, right. it was developed by people later and elaborated on and built up and streamlined and developed. And then similarly, it's not as though Newton and Leibniz came up with this stuff out of whole cloth. They were building on immediate predecessors, like, you know, the folks in Italy, you know, Cavalieri and uh, Torricelli and, mm-hmm. and folks like that. They were building on um, Pascal and Fermat, Descartes, mm-hmm. they were building on ancient authors like Euclid and Archimedes. It's not clear if they had any influence from India, but there were people in India who'd done very similar work just a century or right. two prior, coming up with a lot of the stuff that Newton and Leibniz came up with, with infinite series and with the Taylor series for sine and cosine and stuff like that. So it's it's about, I don't know, ideas come from communities. They don't come from just from one individual. They come from an mm-hmm. individual in a community. So it's so silly to get, you know, that these two great people and, and all the people around them got so entangled in this petty feud. There's just just a huge waste, like you said. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you definitely see why it happened, but it's a shame yeah. that it happened. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. P- people love credit. You know, <laughs> you want to, <laughs> you don't want people looking at the giants below you. You want people looking up on the shoulders to see you. Yeah. Spotlight on me. But you know, yeah. you have this, I really like what you were talking about with the ideas not being pure and absolute. And you have like a really nice 
a really nice little sentence that you wrote, which is that maybe ideas draw their hues and shades from the intellectual context, just like crystals derive their color from trace contaminants. And I love the way you put that because exactly what you, you talked about, like what is created now is only there because of, you know, other people actually put, look at, look at Pythagoras, you know, the Pythagorean theorem, but like Babylonians were doing that forever ago. Every, yeah. every single thing that we think of, you know, it's only, you think about airplanes, right? The Wright brothers made one. And it's what you said before, like we knew that it was possible. And because of that, we were able to improve on it. And who did it first? It doesn't matter. You can always improve on it and put your name in the conversation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And even when I think about this as a teacher, right? When, when a new student learns calculus, Every time someone new learns calculus, it's a slightly new calculus, right? Like mm -hmm. the calculus that's happening in your head, you know, calculus as it's instantiated in your mind is kind of this new thing that plays off of ideas that you already have in your mind that has slightly different connections than it has right. in other people's mind. Like the, right, one of the, the words I like to use, I, I don't know anything about wine, but people who I know a lot about wine, wine talk about terroir? Terroir, yeah. Terroir, yeah, right. Which is like, what, can you say what that is? Oh, wait, if you're asking me how much of a wine snob I am, like, not much of one, but it's like, basically where the grapes are grown. And, yeah. you know, depending on the soil and things like that, you know, is what the flavor comes out. And so you could say, a oh, no, of vanilla and cigarette <laughs> smoke or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, th I think of that of calculus, right? Like whatever, like calculus in my mind has like notes of vanilla, no cigarette smoke. Cause I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't me a little like bit. cigarette yeah, I don't like cigarettes. Either. Love vanilla. Love vanilla. Like notes of vanilla and cardamom in my mind yeah, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Notes of vanilla and Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, <laughs> like it's got, you know, whatever ideas you're taking in interact with the other mm -hmm. ideas in your mind and your, right. your mind becomes a very specific soil with its own unique set of nutrients for these ideas to grow in. And I think that's true anytime anyone thinks about calculus. So the calculus that Leibniz understood and the way he thought mm -hmm. about it, you know, his mind was just a different kind of soil than Newton's, mm -hmm. which was a different kind of soil than Madhava's a century and a half earlier mm -hmm. in India, which was a different kind of soil than uh, L'Hopital or Johann mm -hmm. Bernoulli or, or the other Bernoulli, first name I forget. Right. Um, and, and, you know, a different, a different soil again, you know, when Duchatelet and Agnesi came along, their minds again offered a different soil. And when I teach calculus to students, each mind, they is just a slightly different soil. And so you get a slightly different vintage of calculus in every in every mind. And it's cool because, you know, like when you do start teaching calculus and students start to see it for the first time and you get those students that you see the spark and you see the little light that's starting to flicker. And then they ask you the question that it's, you know, the questions that they come up with that, you know, then cause me to think about things in a different way. I mean, it is exactly correct. When I was first learning about all these, like, keep it secret, keep it safe in the in the early whatever century it was, I was so sad because even in my grad work, I the only way that I was able to learn stuff was because I was talking to my classmates and we were all like throwing stuff together. And what if we did this? And yeah. I mean, you know, I just, I don't know how, and look at, again, we're back to Fermat, look at the last theorem where it wouldn't have been solved without every single person throwing in what, what they could. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that they found, I can't remember which one it was, but they broke like one little piece of it. And everybody was like celebrating that they broke one little piece of it. And then they realized they hadn't solved the whole thing. But like, arguably, does it matter? Because like, you got this little thing. And that's amazing. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I think even the greatest contributions that we have, even the Newtons and the Leibnizes and the Madhavas and, and the Duchatelets and the Agnesis, they're moving the ball a little bit downfield. It's, it's, it's always incremental, right? Mm -hmm. It's always the next step that the society's mathematical understanding is capable of. 
And like, that's the best part is like my favorite thing about math is that it's infinite, right? Because there's always more to discover. There's always just on the outskirts, just a little more. And like you think about someone like Erdish, who was able to ask you a question based on the math that you knew and to challenge (laughs) you a little further. Like that's, first of all, like amazing that he could just like suss you up like that and just be like, here's a question for you. And I mean, what a, what a great guy. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. You know, I was just going to say, yeah, that I think especially like another thing that credit misses that thinking about priority disputes like Newton and Leibniz misses is that being the one to like come up with the technique and prove that it works. That's mm-hmm. one kind of contribution to mathematics, but there's so many other kinds, right? There's the contribution of someone like Agnesi who like makes the material accessible and combines mm-hmm. it and synthesizes it in a new way. Yep. And there's the contribution of someone like Erdosh who connected people and put people into collaboration together yep. and or who would offer the conjecture or who would ask the right question. And, you know, it's people who simplify things later or people who like there, there's just a lot of different ways to contribute to the intellectual project of mathematics. And not all of them are like, I was the first to prove this theorem, so I should get right. my name on it. That's a very that's one particular and conspicuous kind of contribution. But it's like any project. There's, there's just like there's a lot of roles on the team. One of my things that I've been meaning to research for a while, it's been on my list every semester when I was teaching college algebra, one of the things that we talk about is matrices, right? You think about Gaussian elimination and you go through and you know what that is. And then you think about Gauss-Jordan elimination. Evidently, Gauss stopped and then Jordan built on it would be without any research at all would be my thinking. And it's exactly what you're talking about here, you know, and it's it's funny because my students are like, well, why can't we do Gaussian? And I'm like, you can like, that's the point. Like Jordan just improved it, right? Yeah. Just made it more yeah. efficient. Yeah. It's funny how many hyphenated things there are in math. I was just talking about something with my wife the other night where she was like, oh, I thought that was one person with a hyphenated name. Turns out it's two people. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That was just the one I was thinking. Of. It was that, that wasn't the one we were thinking of. But yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. Something like. Do you right. see? Literally. So, listeners, Ben and I were emailing this morning before before we met, and I was like, "Oh, this is a really cool like this." I, I knew I read this before, and then you said, um, "No, that actually." Right. Yeah. Right. I'd sent I'd sent you the document that had my notes on or my my writing on Newton and Leibniz and the priority dispute, which you were like, "Oh yeah, man, I've, I've forgotten a lot of this since I read it in your book." And I was like, "No, no, no. I cut that from the book. The, the chapter I'd sent." you wasn't actually in the book, you wouldn't have had a chance to read it. And, and now here we are again, like, I'm like, Bolzano via Strauss. And like, why would we both like hone in on the very <laughs> <Right>. same? <laughs> but partly because they're two great names. I mean, Bolzano and via Strauss are both just you know, top tier mathematician names. <laughs> well, Ben, I thank you so much. Like, this was such a fun, I mean, they're all fun, but this was such a fun episode to record. I'm so glad that you and I got to catch up. Yeah, no, me, me too, Natalie. No, no, thanks so much for having me on. It's bad. I'm yeah. a fan of the show and it's fun to, fun to, it feels like, you know, walking into the TV screen or whatever to to get to be on it. (laughs) I'm so excited. Well, I appreciate you and I appreciate the conversation and um, hopefully we can talk again soon. Yeah, no, I'd love that. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Infinitely Irrational. Can't get enough of the math and fun? Visit us on the web at infinitelyirrational.com for math and research behind the stories. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or email at podcast at infinitelyirrational.com. If you love this episode, subscribe, follow, and share. See you soon for the next one.